Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Stage Side Podcast. Today's guest is Casey Cavalier from the Wonder Years Band. How you doing, Casey? I'm doing great, man. Uh, thanks. Yeah, uh, funny. I love that the uh, the handle still has band on it. Um, it's just the Wonder Years, but yes, for all intents and purposes, it might we are a band, so that is yeah. also accurate. <laughs> uh, and sometimes a good clarification, uh, depending on how sparse your Google was uh, of the phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Did I say band when I introduced you? I, I, dude, honestly, it's just, a, you're probably not the first one. You're probably not the last. It just comes, I say it out loud every time I type it in on some sort of post or email. So um, okay. it's my fucking band. So <laughs> yeah, um, no, totally. Um, and it's up there on the board behind you. So that's also probably why uh, I, I caught it. Otherwise I wouldn't have, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've been reading that nonstop. My, my wife makes the board for us and um, she was like trying to space it out. And she was like, this is the longest name we've had yet. And I was like, well, run it to the edge. So I just keep seeing band gonna, all day. We're going to need another board. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good thing you didn't list everybody's name because there's way too many of us. And then you really would have needed another board. <laughs> yeah. And you guys got some long handles and names. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, not a, a couple of them are short. A couple of them are, um, they could be worse though. We were talking about names before we got on the podcast here. Um, and I've seen some hairier ones with a couple extra vowels, consonants that can throw people for a loop. Yeah, Much for sure. E on the end of my name that is silent, which we talked about. Yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, good to be here. Um, happy to have a little little chat about the Wonder Years. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, kind of jump right into you know the hum. We got the album that just released not too long ago, and you're fresh off the tour. I think what two three weeks ago it ended. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like just yesterday. And also, in some ways, it feels like ages ago. Uh, time is a relative thing and a very weird thing at that. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, the newest album, The Hum Goes On Forever. We're very proud of it. Um, uh, I'm looking at it and right there over your left shoulder. And I still to this day love the cover. Uh, also, funny story, that photo, it, it, which is really cool and incredible. And for anybody that hasn't seen the cover, you, you can just Google it or take a look. But it's a kind of a mirror image. And funny enough, I had it behind me on, on a on a shelf here for a while. And um, it's the classic. Uh, and there are a few albums that do this. And this was like kind of intentionally so, obviously, from an artistic standpoint. But I realized that I even um, had it had a bunch of them when I we got all our variant presses back initially before it dropped, uh, that I had it sitting upside down on a shelf. Uh, and I, didn't, I was like, oh, man. You're totally right. <laughs> um, and uh, my singer or our manager caught it. And I was like, not that it matters, but like, damn, it got me. And we sat there having the conversations about the artwork too. Um, and so I kind of love that uh, in its own way. But yeah, um, that is the newest, uh, like uh, technically the seventh studio album that the band has put out, which is which is pretty wild. Yeah. How was the response as far as the tour one being gone for so long with all the shows being shut down and everything, but for the first tour cycle of an album, how was this different from any of the previous releases? You know, it's interesting with each, uh, with each release we put out, we are, um, what I guess I'll say of a very humble nature in the sense that, uh, with all the, um, with all the success and support that we've seen over pretty much the last two decades, um, every time we put out a record or even every time we go on tour, um, you look at the numbers, there's projections and every, and you still are just like, but like, really, it feels too good to be true. Like this, you know, um, you know, are we sure that like everybody probably stopped caring after this, right. You know, <laughs> um, and, um, 
suffice it to say with this record that couldn't have been further from the case um both in the response leading up to the release of the record and then yes with the the tour that we just did we just made a full us round um playing a lot of songs off this new record which is we we get it um admittedly um a, a somewhat bold and sometimes ambitious uh decision to make as a band um you know that's had some years and tours under their belts um it's not just people coming out um well sometimes there are but it's it's typically not a lot of people coming out seeing the band for the first time um and so to play a lot of a new album off of you know maybe something that they're not yet familiar with um you know can be a little jarring sometimes but um the response that we got back from playing all of these new songs was so so gratifying and so i mean it, it felt like it brought us and everybody that's been supporting us and listening to us um together on an even deeper level truly than anything we've experienced with any albums in the past honestly um so it was amazing i mean the whole tour was pretty much sold out top to bottom um had a great run with the lovely lads in hot mulligan who are having a lovely moment and ascension uh as well <laughs> um I, I love those those dudes and carly cosgrove also on the tour doing some really cool things another philly band so um you know the lineup itself was also just um quite somewhat perfect in, in its own way too um for us a band having done a lot of tours you know you don't always you like it you like playing but there's different dynamics with different groups of people and this one was really good um so the combination of that and the reception of the record was magnificent and honestly this the the one thing that you you asked it, how this was different um we we wanted to be somewhat strategic um in how we chose to begin touring um with this record right and so for that reason we didn't want to come right out of the gate we released the record back in september and we didn't want to immediately go on a full u.s tour um because we are decidedly a band that appreciates the power and weight that you get out of an entire album and realize that it takes time to digest that and um and formulate your own personal relationship with every album right and that that takes time that takes some listens that takes some perspective maybe that takes a little bit of extra life kind of coming in and intermingling with the things that you hear on the record and, and how they do or don't resonate with you from one way to another and um in years past with albums you know a lot of bands will will kind of rush to to create this huge one explosive moment you know the album comes out and then two weeks later or right then they're on tour and then they kind of finish that one to two month period and they realize oh like that was cool but we played these three songs and i feel like people hated them you know <laughs> nobody was really singing them at all and then after a while you realize oh no the next time when we when we go back like on the secondary cycle or or hit those markets again a year into the record coming out it's like oh we did try and play this again people actually love it um and we we were playing a song uh actually a song called Ernest Hemingway and uh Dan mentioned um most nights that actually that was kind of an interesting song where we really loved it and thought it was a really cool song on that record and we just played realized we played it too early you know that uh that people just weren't familiar with it when we played it right out of the gate um right at, right when that record came out and we didn't want to make that same mistake because we felt like these songs had a lot to offer and you know were really 
really important to us. And we wanted people to be able to take time and formulate those relationships and find those moments and entry points into the record all the way through. And I, I think it it had a pretty big impact in that, you know, by the time we got there to those to those cities in the US and played, I think like seven new songs or something, so maybe eight even. Okay. Um, uh, off the record don't quote me on that uh but it was it was a good chunk it was at least six or seven um new new tracks off um uh it felt like they you know it felt like the crowds were louder they had moments it felt like um you know the same way that they might be reacting to some of the older back catalog and previous records that it was almost the same conviction if not more so an outpouring because it was you know much more timely and some of the some of the tracks definitely relate to where we and I think everybody but our singer Dan also <clears throat> was uh, you know emotionally physically um you know throughout the pandemic so uh yeah so I think that's probably what maybe if anything changed by our own hand um but it, it seemed to work out really well and uh, I'm glad we made that decision good and that yeah like you mentioned so it came out in September so it hasn't even been a full year but for some reason, this one feels like it's been out for years, at least for me. Uh, again, you know, I'm sure it feels like that for you with the writing process and everything, but I don't know what it is. We get, you know, like songs about death. We get kind of like a new sound and new outlook from the Wonder Years. But then like old friends like Lost Teeth has like all the hints of classic Wonder Years with all the different vocal layers and, you know, the, the yells in the background and everything like that. So we get all these different aspects of new and old. So I feel like it's, again, it stands out from the rest of the catalog, but in a way it fit right in where it was almost like instant nostalgia as well. And part of that could have also been, you know, just from, again, like you were saying with Dan writing through the pandemic and things everybody can relate to. I think more people than ever grew out their hair that didn't think they would. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Me, if I go like two, three weeks out of haircut, I'm ready to shave my head off. Like I can't yep. stand it. The pandemic, yep. I didn't cut my hair for like 15 months. I was just like, who, same thing, who gives a shit? Like I'm not right. going into work, whatever. So I think it was like getting through that and then just kind of, again, sitting with that album for so long and not seeing it on a tour right away. And you know, the sister cities was what, 2018. So yeah. Four full years between the releases. So it was kind of like binging it and then like maybe take a few days off and then binge it again. And it, I don't know, it just fit right in. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's nice to hear you say that, uh, actually, uh, especially for the fact that I, I will tell you, um, you know, with this approach, this aim to this album and, and the way we went about making it. And um, with every album, there's, you know, there's a little bit of a different goal, but you never really know where you're going to end up. Um but what we found out through, you know, the previous records that we've made is regardless of what twists and turns we actually take, where we always end up is in some way decidedly a Wonder Years record. And with this record specifically, instead of, you know, saying we want to push this wall out, you know, we want to play with like heavier dynamics. We want to play with a little bit more, you know, ambience and effect driven stuff. You know, sometimes there, there will be those kind of um, goals where we want to evolve as a band and, you know, pull in certain individual evolutions as musicians and as our tastes just naturally evolve as music fans. Right. So um, there's always that kind of ongoing current, but with this record, I think the one difference and what's what makes me happy to hear you say something like that is that 
when we sat down, we said, what does it mean to make a Wonder Years record? And that was what we tried to do, you know? Um, and I, I think to hear you say things like that, where it sounds new and um, exciting, but also familiar instantly at the same time, I think uh, that at least to my ear says that we we may have um, executed that in a way for fans that are familiar with the band to to respond like that to the songs and the album as a whole. So that was kind of us unpacking like, hey, what do we do? What are the things that we lean into? And what are the things that instead of trying to go against the grain to force ourselves just to make something um, different for the sake of being different than ourselves to say, what are our strengths? What do we do? What is what happens when we try to do this? And um and kind of to go do that and, and to go show that in song form of what, you know, this record hum would not be possible without the other six before it. You know, you can see, um, you know, referential material in the last five, six albums where those things finally feel like for us anyway, they came to fruition. The things that we were exploring across these last five albums really showed themselves in a fully realized place on these songs. And that's kind of what we were hoping to go for, you know, um, and, and trying to execute instead of, um, you know, we, we never want to make a record just for the sake of making a record. We wanted to, we always, we're, we're a very driven band. We always have a goal in mind and we always want to make sure that something has some sort of lasting value to it and fits into our catalog as a band and more importantly the catalog of our listeners and of people that have been listening for a really long time and invested a lot of time with us so um that's what we want to do and i think yeah to hear you say stuff like that where you know it's like that is that is in a way how we felt as well playing the songs and writing them and that's how that was our guide where we knew that we were there with this song if it felt like this feels honest, this feels like us, but it also has this like quite different impact from song to song, depending on it, where it still doesn't feel stale. Right. So that was, that was the goal. And I, I feel good about where we landed with the album for sure. Yeah, definitely achieved. Um, and from all the online reception I've seen, I think people feel the same way I do as far as it, you know, being that, like you said, new fresh, but slides right in there and doesn't feel forced. Um, with that being said, how over the course of how long and if you mentioned the documentary forgive me i haven't watched a youtube documentary on it yet but over the course of how long did you did it take to write this record and is that much longer or much shorter than any previous releases um well i would uh recommend um the you or anybody that's curious uh do take uh take a look at that um, documentary uh yeah it's about 45 minutes long um but it really does a good job of encapsulating the whole span of it honestly um of what it was like attempting to write mid-pandemic <laughs> um uh, of things that we were referencing and the influences all throughout our career and how they landed in this time and space on the record um and some of the new places that you know that we went and um and explored uh, both in the tracking uh and writing phase of it um you know, it's always tough to say, because I think what's interesting is how do you start? Um, how do you start quantifying the time put in on a record? Because technically, it's every single bit of, like I said, our 
band's lineage, our history. There's referential material uh, on this album that dates back to, you know, our second, third album, right? Um, and even more. So anybody that's listening, it's just like, well, we kind of started writing this as it turns out <laughs> uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? Um, and um, we just didn't really start putting the pen to paper uh, on it specifically under this name until, you know, maybe, um, you know, 2019, 2020. Um, but, uh, it, you know, every album, like I said, has its, um, has its arc, has its compositional arc. And this one was no different. It, it just presented, as you can imagine, as we talk a lot in the documentary, honestly, so I won't, you know, extrapolate too much yeah. here because that's, that's way easier. And I think it, it would, it would uh, do a, an even better job of clarifying and visualizing, you know, what we went through with that. But you know, it, um, it felt a little bit more arduous, but not because the songs weren't coming just because it, we were trying to be safe about writing. And then we were trying, you know, running out an Airbnb for a whole week in, in the middle of nowhere, uh, in a snowstorm, um, just so we could all like kind of almost like NBA bubble style quarantine to get a week <laughs> worth of writing in person in, um, cause we were really struggling with some of the alternatives. So, it felt like it was long, but it was across, you know, about a year and I won't spoil it, but the end of the document um, and the documentary goes into some of how we um, ended up. This is the first record that we've ever done this with, but splitting it um, across multiple studios and multiple producers, um, both of whom we, we've worked with um, over the years uh, quite a bit, but had never come together on the same record. Um, and that was forged out of, you know, our kind of questioning of how we can re release something, um, maybe in a smaller sort, and then ultimately saying, no, we really like these songs. We don't want it to get lost as like a special projects EP, you know, that, that yeah. doesn't, get its, that doesn't get its due. Um but yeah, so it, it it took a while, you know, I'd say probably like two years overall, but, <clears throat> you know, the writing is always an ongoing thing and we're still pretty much till the very end tweaking and tinkering, you know, um, and with this one, you know, it was no different, but we did feel really good about where, um, you know, two thirds of those songs, if not more were and pre-pro um, that we did on the uh, the majority of them was with Steve Evitz, who has produced, this was the fourth record Steve has done with us. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a reason that we went back to that because I think he more than anybody has seen the journey uh, of us all individually and collectively as a band. So we know that he gets that and the dynamic is, is great and has also evolved as well to where I think he can lean on us, myself, um, some of the other members that, you know, over the years have become much more heavy handed with the, you know, instrumentation and production side of things. So there's, there's an extension of trust that allowed us to bring in some friends to um, <clears throat> on the record that, that actually helped us feel like we finally, you're always going to be uh, going until the 11th hour in the studio. It doesn't matter how much time you have. You always somehow seem to fill it and seem like you have, you wish you had just like a, a day or two more, but this one was, I think the closest that we got honestly to, um, to saying, Hey, we're done. Great. You know, short of a few harmonies, you know, from some blown voices that we had to ultimately overdub, there wasn't anything where we felt like we, we left it, completely untapped or you know or any idea and we felt like it it came together and we executed it in a way that you know after four you know plus records with steve we were like we found a formula we found a you know a system that, that really worked effectively so um 
So that was, you know, maybe a little bit of the difference. We also did um, did track part of the drums as part of like an exciting thing for us and any like gear nerds or maybe Foo Fighters fans um, <clears throat> uh, at a studio that that's owned by the band out there in L.A. has a beautiful open live room, a very historic um, Neve recording console that you can see in the Sound City documentary with Dave. And he actually purchases it from Sound City and brings it to that studio. So um it's pretty some pretty exciting kind of like cool rock lineage that is baked into the drum tracks for this record. Um, that was fun for us to to kind of put those things um, together, drums, bass in a in a new space, right? Uh, a new environment that especially this long into the band, it, it's it's nice, you know. Even if it's like there's less and less places to, for us to tour that we haven't, you know, at least been or touched down on once before in the past. So anytime we get to do that and break some new ground it's it's really exciting creatively for us and fulfilling um as people so that was that was also a nice little addition to this process how are you guys going into that studio because i know you're a producer and it seems like pretty much everyone in the band is multi-instrument and has their own side projects and productions going on were you guys kind of nerding out going into that foo fighter studio and being able to see that and play in there Oh yeah, it's um it's a freaking candy store, truthfully. Um it's it's like a it's like a toy it's like a kid at Toys R Us. Um and uh but it's also really inspiring, you know what I mean? Cause like every piece of gear has a history, um, you know, and just the general <clears throat> um the general vibe when you walk into a space like that. Um you know, there's like, there's old archive tapes, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, but I think you feel like there's like a moment that you really want to make sure you try to rise to, you know, and we've been making records for a long time. We've been, I've been in a lot of really nice studios um, and been lucky enough to experience some really cool places like that, that, that have their own historic, um, their own historic tales and, and origins to them. Uh, but yeah, walking in there, I mean, you look on the console and there's an old school photo literally of the drum setup that Dave track never mind on through that console. You know what I mean? So it's like a picture of that. And it's the shittiest looking thing too, by the way. It's like if anybody records, it's like some 58s and like they they cut out an old bass drum case to tunnel the bass drum. It looks really janky. But if you're an engineer or have made some records that you you look at it and you're like, yeah, that probably that it just it did it. That sounded great. And it's because Dave was that was the drummer that was playing it. So any kit would have been its own thing and great because you you have a player and a moment and songs that were real as hell. But so you see that and that sits there and the console has been signed by all these like heavy hitters. And you're like, all right, I'm putting sound through this. It better be good. I better, you know, I want to bring it right. Um, you know, and at least try to try to put some sort of, you know, positive professional energy into this room while we're here but um so yeah it, it was um it was a really great experience we we had a really good time and i think it was it was really special for us to also then be there with steve who's become a lifelong friend of the band as well cool that's exciting and yeah i, I get what you're saying as far as like you're definitely confident like all right we've put these releases out we know what we're doing but when you get in that kind of foreign territory and then it's it's kind of more real when you see when you see the equipment or you see the signatures and you're like, oh shit, like this is, you know, this is now. Like you said, I want to capture this moment. I want to put something through it. Like I want to leave my mark on this as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and like I said too, it's like we are always very humble. We never came from, you know, like feeling like we were owed anything or um, and even so I think that's 
I think that's very readily apparent in our band and uh, and what we put out into the world. Um, and if anybody's ever seen us live, um, you know, I hope that that honesty and, and gratitude does come across. But in that moment, it was like, yes, we feel like, you know, we've done a lot and worked hard to, to own cool, uh, earn cool experiences like this. But it still doesn't kind of, you know, I still and luckily I I um, I fear the day that I ever lose this. But there's still always just a little flash of, holy shit, this is wild, you know, yeah. of like 15 year old me would freak out right now, you know, um, but we've kind of edged up to it um, over time. So it's a little less jarring, but I, I love those moments. And and luckily we um, I'm in a band that almost 20 years later still has those moments, which is really cool. Yeah, you guys have been at it for a long time, and it definitely translates live. Like you were saying, I've seen you guys. So I actually seen you. I've seen you multiple times, but I seen you guys on March tenth in Salt Lake, uh, twenty twenty, yeah. the day before. Oh wow! Like, yes, you know, the day before Tom Hanks and Rudy Gobert and everybody. Mm -hmm. And you guys actually started that off with the Burst into K set. Yeah, and then went into the regular full band set, and that's a whole other series in itself where. You know, Dan talked about it on stage. It was, I'm sure he said it online too, but it was songs you guys feel like, you know, either didn't get the love that they deserved or just needed some tweaking and went to be seen in a different light. So it was cool to take those and not, because it seems like you guys didn't just do, all right, here's an acoustic version of this, like, and just bland. It seems like you guys did try to punch those up in certain areas and present it as an entire new song, even though it's a song that we know lyrically and everything like that. And again, yeah. I've seen you guys do like the live VIP, like floor set. I was in Detroit. You guys did one. Or it was just kind of you guys sitting on chairs at the Fillmore and yeah. playing, did the Death Cab cover and all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess I wanted to ask, so, because I know when you're not touring, you're doing all production work in the studio in New Jersey, correct? Uh, so actually, um, about a year and a half ago, I moved down to Atlanta. So okay. I live, I live outside Atlanta now, but I'm always back and forth, uh, obviously, cause the band's still based in Philadelphia and, uh, my studio is still there as well, along with, um, most of my gear. So I still visit it, um, pretty regular, regularly and, um, still do projects out of the studio, uh, in there when, when the timing calls for it or the, you know, can the location is convenient. Um, but for the meantime, I, you know, I do any production and things either remotely or based down in Atlanta. Um, so I kind of jump around a little bit, but I still have true level studio, which is in Blackwood, New Jersey. And, um, yeah, and it's a great space that was kind of forged out of just wanting a spot to do my own thing and work with some other bands, do some songwriting, some mixing, um, which I've been doing on the side, but, um, yes. So to answer your question that is there, but, uh, uh, I do forget what your exact question was, if that was not it. No. So what I was going to lead to in this might be like a jumbled question, but I guess, is it hard to turn off the producer brain from working with other people to when you're writing and recording for the wonder years? And then I guess maybe to segue that as well with burst and decay, like, again, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but how hard was it to basically rewrite and replay that? without trying to stay too true to the original, like full electric version. 
Yeah. So I guess two part so, question there. Yeah. So that's a great part. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'll start with the the latter of those two parts. So re-envisioning those from an acoustic context, right? And it's actually really interesting. I'm going to pull up some notes that I have here um, that is from an upcoming uh, episode of the record process that will probably come out in a, in a couple of weeks. So I don't know when this will come out, but um, either way, uh, and I was just thinking about it and ruminating on an interview that I had with an artist um, that goes by the name of Field Medic. Um, his name's Kevin Sullivan, incredibly brilliant songwriter. Um, and he, we were kind of talking about his process and how he doesn't, for that record, he didn't really write anything down, right? Um, that he just kind of like st almost stream of consciousness, um, what he has called like kind of his like freestyle, um, like uh, mixtape kind of thing, like full-time freestyle, like just let it come out, right? And it's a really interesting thing because what happens there, I think, is that you have this unfiltered, uh, microscope that you're putting over an idea where the listener is hearing it and what they are getting is almost that idea at its exact moment of conception, which is really powerful sometimes because when it comes to you, um, often it's, you know, it has so much potential and there's almost this like understood context to it without trying to, you know, say it or explain it, um, in that moment. But sometimes not always, um, you know, you can lose a little bit of the character and the weight. Uh, it can get like a little diluted or buried um, by how you choose to capture it or ultimately present it. Right. And that's not to say that that has happened or that we felt that happen with some songs, but there have always been some songs where we knew that the underlying core of the song, you know, the instrumentation, the parts were really great. We just maybe thought that like, hey, the final version never told the whole story almost, if that makes sense, um, because of how it was presented, right? Maybe it's like this lyric was incredible, but it was too loud and it kind of didn't have its like shine. Um, or there was some really cool instrumental arrangement and chordal stuff happening, but on under heavy distortion, maybe, you know, it just, you didn't get the full depth of it, right? So for us going back was us being able to take a look at those and say, hey, what do we think maybe didn't come out? What do we think we get a chance to re-highlight, you know, um, and kind of flip the flip the coin um, on it and realizing that a lot of these songs have a very deep connection in their original form and realizing that, again, just like any band, you've got to realize the art you're making is not going to be for everyone. And in this case, we're like, hey, it's going to be okay if you don't love the acoustic version of this song more than that. But we think that there's might be a little bit of value in at least hearing what it might sound like from the same band that wrote it and recorded it originally, as opposed to just, you know, someone else doing their interpretation of it. This was kind of our retake on it. And, um, and it's a really interesting exercise um, for us to do. And I think a cool opportunity for you to maybe get out of the way of some of that, like stuff that can get lost in the translation of doing a full band production, right. Or having it, the outset to be, you know, Hey, we want to build this all up and have it feel like immense and huge and loud. Um, you know, what happens when you, when you flip the script with these songs and, and choosing the ones to do that with, right. For, for very, um, you know, distinct reasons. And I, and I love it. And it's a project that, um, that has, I think, brought a lot more clarity to us about our band and about our songwriting, which is really cool. And ultimately, it's, I think, another piece in the collection that, uh, 
that is really meaningful and gives people a chance to enjoy songs in a very different context. You know, you saw the show, it's like, it's a very different energy. Yeah. That set to the, for the first set, obviously speaking, but that's a cool thing too, where we wanted to say, Hey, we think the songwriting that we're doing has depth and the stories have depth. So let's put the story on, on highlight here. And then we can put the, you know, the high energy stuff and mirror it with it later, but let's, let's pull those pieces out. So um, it's really neat. And, but it is, as you might imagine in making those records and any records, we are a band of six people and we are a band of six people that have a lot of different tastes. Right. Yeah. Um, and a band of six people that are not just at any given point, taking in things that are directly influential to Wonder Years alone, right? Um, you know, it's ever changing and ever growing. And with that, the the collection of of what you know the Wonder Years filter is and and creates when you put an idea in it slowly changes over time too. But um, in terms of you know, it's less a compartmentalization and more what I've noticed personally from my my role with the band and how I view the way we write and our process and and all of the things that kind of step by step by step get us to putting a record like Hum together is that I don't have to be as worried as I used to be about the outcome. And I can just sit back and say, let me fully understand and explore the process of how this is going some things seem very familiar and sometimes that's frustrating some some things seem very unfamiliar about the process and sometimes that's scary right <clears throat> but i always have to know that if i lean on the collection of six people the same six people with all of their different tastes and you know with varying degrees of passion about those tastes that they are going to mix to make a Wonder Years record and that I should worry less about, will this be a good record? Will this be a bad record? And again, like I mentioned with Hum, if it's a Wonder Years record, I'm confident that Wonder Years fans will appreciate it. Does that mean it'll be their favorite? Sometimes favorite versus best are very subjective things depending on how somebody else. So, you know, what I realize is it it ultimately is not even up to me. If we make a record that we think is good, there's somebody out there that might listen to it on the wrong day and say, this is terrible. This is the worst Wonder Years <laughs> record because of the, the time and place and context, right? Maybe somebody got broken up while listening to it. A lot of other things <clears throat> traumatic happen in lives, you know, and people never want to listen to anything ever again that reminds them of that moment. That's not for us to judge, but at the very least, I know that what we are putting out is going to be a wonder years record. So I've learned to hold on to it a little less tightly. And that sometimes means stepping back from some of my more rigid opinionated views, both independently, and then trusting somebody else to say, Hey, if I really think it should be this way, but five other people are like, I don't know, I'm not convinced. That's okay to let it go. That's okay to like, you don't have to die on that hill. And we all, I see it. Everybody does that kind of like, you know, let me put it this way speaking politics for a moment, which you're obviously never supposed to do, but who cares? Um, the old saying goes, uh, democracy is the worst form of government, but it's the best one we have to date, right? You know, it's kind of like that too, in terms of creating and writing as a band, right? Just because it works for us does not mean it's an easy process, right? But I think at this point in our career, we know that that's what it takes to make a Wonder Years record.
And if we started trying to find shortcuts and shorthands, I'm not sure it would come out the same way, you know? So every time we get in there and get in the arena, we know we might get beat up a little bit, but you know what I mean? Like, but that's okay because we're doing that to put something out into the world that we know can only be fashioned in that way. You know, um, it's kind of like, uh, not, not shooting our, our own horn and calling us master craftsmen. Right. But it's like somebody that's like, Hey, this guy spends, you know, how many hours, days, months, years shaping this perfect statue by hand, you know? And if somebody comes in and says, yeah, I have a machine that can do that in about five minutes. Is it going to be the same thing? Certainly not to that guy. And maybe somebody else might not fully know the difference, but there might be a little context there that's lost. And I, I think that's, we are believers in that phenomenon as well, that like it's the choices in that like labor of love one at one at a time and slowly and methodically that really makes the difference. Um, Cause even if someone for some reason can't pick up on that in a, a very distinct point in the music, it's so completely throughout everything we do with our band and our career. So that's, that's more important to us, I think. And to your point, I think that plays through and everything. Uh, I'm a little biased, so I'm from Baltimore. So not far from you guys and yeah. I'm around the same age, as everybody. So it's kind of almost, especially lyrically from all the releases, it's kind of like different things I've went through, you know, within give or take one or two years each way that yeah. kind of like, I'm like, Oh, I can really relate to this or I can tie to this. But it feels like each Wonder Year song, especially those ones that I really relate to, like you were saying, it's not just machine output of like, Hey, here's a standard song about death, about loss, about relationship. It's, especially lyrically, you guys get super detailed and specific, but at the same time, there are still those general overarching, you know, I don't want to say generalizations, but similarities that people can tie to it. Yeah. So it feels, you know, you can put it up against any other song about breakup or having kids or getting married or whatever. And then it just, I don't know, it has that extra something. Like you were saying, it's, you know, there's a machine made one. It's like, yeah, this does the job. But this one that was made by hand, it just has something intangible that just does the job better or makes you feel a certain way when doing the job. So I think that definitely shows through in the final releases that you guys put out. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it's all a mindset, right? But at the same time, I think mindset is really important because that's what keeps you waking up and keeps you trying to be better and trying to create and trying to make something meaningful, you know? Um if everything just gets outsourced automated, right? Like we're taught we're in the era of AI. That's what everybody on podcasts and um, and blogs wants to talk about right now, right? It's like, um, I mean, I definitely don't think it's like if anybody's used ChatGPT, right? And like tried to write your podcast notes, do they come out exactly the same? No. And I think ultimately what makes your, what makes your podcast different than the next podcast, different than the next is a little bit of that, signature tone even if it's imperfect right the imperfections like the kintsuki stuff that album death cab not not making my top three death cab albums but the idea and the turn of phrase which is basically taking broken porcelain and gluing it back together with flecks of gold to actually emphasize the cracks and the imperfections because that's what gives it character and meaning and sets it apart instead of like a perfectly pristine unbroken um vase that looks exactly like you know 50 others right so um it doesn't crack in the same way and i and i love 
that idea, you know, some, I'm sure you too can share this. Some of my favorite records from the last 20, 30 years, the parts that I remember are the parts that are maybe like little fuck ups or that are weird, that are something that not in a million years could that person have gone back and tried to do that again and done it the same way. Uh, I'll give you actually a perfect example. We talked about burst and decay. The intro that we uh, produced, um, with our good buddy Ace Enders for the Washington Square Park reimagination on that. Um, that is actually a fretting out noise on the acoustic when I was just playing around with the scratch track when we were finding a tempo map to it, playing that finger picking part. And uh, I don't forget what I did or like I bumped into something or just, you know, flubbed a note and uh, it just made this like, wow. Um, kind of like caught, you know, caught a fret weird and and flared. And then we went back and isolated it and it just had this weird sound and we clipped it, reversed it. And that became the thing that we actually built the inverse, um, you know, loop thing out of that became the underlying bed of it. So if I didn't make that mistake, that whole thing sounds fucking different. Right. And if we didn't capture it and then instead of being like, oh, that sucks, delete that immediately. Right. Um, then you don't have that kind of creative fodder that sparked an idea that sparked a sound that said, how do we reuse this? And I do that. I, it's actually my favorite thing to do in productions um, and mixes when I'm, when I'm working with other bands is to take their scratch tracks and objectively say, what do I really like about their scratch track that's going on here? And just be like, and they're like, well, no, let me re-record it. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's like, I love this little weird vocal thing. Let me just clip that, fuck it up and stretch it out. And it'll be this cool moment, this little ear candy thing. That's you. It's just, you did it. You right. made it happen. And, um, and why get in the way of the process? You're never going to go do that again like that. And in 10 seconds, I can pull that in and we can have a really cool idea that would never have been there. Otherwise, just, just maybe you are, maybe you already started recording this version uh, of this song, before you even knew it, you know, it's like, it, that's, that's okay. And um, so that's a little example too, of, um, of how sometimes those imperfections, I think are human and you're not going to get that out of a MIDI guitar, you know, <laughs> with, uh, with Washington square park, did you catch that right away? Or was that not until you were listening? Like, did it happen right away? And you were like, Oh, did we get that? Or was it something when you guys were going back through with ACE or was like, Hey, what was that? Pull that real quick. Oh no, it was immediate. Okay. It was like, a, it was a very, yeah. Like I said, I, I'm pretty sure we were like, we weren't even tracking it yet. I'm pretty sure we were just like, kind of like, okay, let's get some sounds. Let, you know, let's dial in the gain staging or whatever. And I did it. And it was like just a flub and like a weird, like resonant thing. Um, I think I may have even been in the control room. So I, and like plugged in just doing scratch tracks again. So like you have the studio monitors there. So I think it might've been like the guitar fed back like, and, and caused it. Um, so yeah, and immediately we had it and went back. And then when it came time to say, hey, we kind of want some weird, like almost like computer-esque, like um, kind of like lo-fi thing happening under here to create this kind of like ocean current that the song can kind of exist on. Um, we we're like, well, what do we do? And it's like, well, instead of just going straight to like, you know, pre-programmed samples or whatever. I, and again, this is what I think a lot of really incredible producers are great at, which is like the kind of sound design extrapolation of like, I can make anything be what I need it to be. If I, you know, if I know how to do it and it can create a really unique result. And that's, so that's what we did. And we kind of took that and built it out. And like 15 minutes later, Ace, you know, hits play and we're like, yeah, 
you know um and uh and the idea w- was kind of born and was kind of there and i don't think you know if we had like similar just like pulled up a midi sample pack it right. wouldn't have it wouldn't have done it you know um but it's the same guitar that then is also ironically in that so it's and maybe you know i it's just me grasping at straws because i love when things come together serendipitously like that or maybe it has something to do with why that actually fits in and feels natural to the song in its own way and why we were like yeah no that works now everything else that we thought about trying on the demos wasn't really there you know so um that's a cool little burst in the case tidbit but yeah um it's fun to do that stuff. And I think that's a, that's a cool moment that made something happen with a, with a song that's that old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and keeps things fun for us too. Classic uh, Bob Ross, happy accident. Or what that's is right. it? There, there are no accidents, happy mistakes. However he said it. That's it. Yep. So, well, yeah. Uh, one other question before we get into the playlist picks, and this is, I guess, kind of just a, a teaser for me and everyone else. It's burst and decay a series that we can expect to go on as the wonder years grows. Ooh, I'll never tell. Okay. <laughs> um, but I did just say that we really enjoy doing it and we have just put out an entire new record of material. And there are, as you probably are aware, um, some songs that we have yet to burst into KFI. So, you know, yeah, the back catalogs saying. there. So just saying, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, no, I mean, we really like doing it. So um, I'm sure even, you know, like I said, every time we put out a record, even with this one, even just doing in stores, that's kind of where the idea came from is we had to strip things down to be able to do like acoustic in store versions, you know, and like, well, how the fuck do we do that? This is like all right. just like all of sound guitars, you know, so we we're like, well, I guess we can kind of rearrange it like this. And then eventually we're like, hey, some of these in store versions sound kind of cool. Like what, you know, what if we just did a, a whole EP or album like that? So, again, it was it was kind of an idea and an avenue that was born out of necessity. <laughs> it works. And yeah. I hope it continues to work for, like I said, the life of the wonder years. I hope we get those trickled out over time. Thanks. Yeah, me too. So what we'll jump into now, uh, we talked about earlier playlist picks. So basically we'll go through each studio release and you just give me two to three of your favorite songs off of that. Okay. I'll do my best. Whatever reason you want, whether it's your favorite to play live, your favorite, you know, from the writing process or just listening to like as an actual listener and not trying to, you know, pick it apart from the writing standpoint, just two or three of your favorite. So we'll start with Upsides. Ooh, okay. Hold on. I'm, I'm going to pull up the track listing here so I can, so I can get a visual on it just so I don't leave any out. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, oh, here we go. Um, let's see. This is this is tough. I mean, having just done all of them, uh, this and Suburbia back to back, you'd think I'd be better about it uh, (laughs) and and really know. But, um, you know, um, we we've done so much. I I really like actually how Hey Thanks came together. Um, You know, playing it was it was very was was fun um, just because it has it adds this extra side of us that i think at that time as a band um it was really important for us to somehow add so the fact that like that song and then a song like hostels and brothels are on the same album like four four tracks apart is both really awesome but then also in its own way decidedly wonder years as i look back on it in hindsight so um i love hey thanks but also i mentioned washington square park if for no other reason 
<clears throat> then just uh, never in my life did I think um, I would write some sort of riff that then uh, in an international capacity would have crowds in Europe that just sing the entire riff at you. Um, specifically that one. It always felt like an odd choice, but it has had our band crack up multiple times to the point of <laughs> almost, us almost stopping to play, be like, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> we're like, um, so much so that we would start just like, I would stop playing it and just like let them do the hits and just have the whole crowd singing the riff. I'm like, this is so dumb, but so great. Um, you know, so uh, probably that one too, because that's uh, has a lot of really nice memories for me. And I just love playing the song. Um, got a got a shred you know um and speaking of shred great segue to suburbia um i have always loved playing my life is a pigeon um i don't know why it's so fun nick and i have a lot of fun there's some like really cool kind of just like simple but fast pentatonic riffs um i don't know i just love playing it i love the bridge it's such a cool high energy song and i i had amazing amazing time playing that um when we did that album all the way through um and not then, because i was gonna say not because you mentioned it, that is one of my favorite on the album that oh was one, of the, one of the first ones that jumped out to me so oh that's awesome yeah and i, I so I, i've always i've always really liked that and that was cool um and then i do love uh, i mean no honestly i'm not gonna say the closers because it feels kind of like a um pop out even though i do really love and now i'm nothing as well and that was fun to play so i think my pick for that would be my life as a pigeon um and i will also say i will say hoodie weather but the burst and decay version because you didn't see that coming um <laughs> because that's actually one that we always felt like we went in circles on, um, but felt like the burst and decay version let the true color of that song really shine in a nice way. So, um, but, uh, but I did always really like the song and the, and the imagery that it paints because um, it does make me remember um, those high school days. Um, okay. So it sounds like I'm piggybacking. I should have said it beforehand when you guys released the burst and decay version and like, I heard like people, they're like, Oh, I want to reimagine. I was like, the original is perfect. Hoodie weather. Like that was, especially like when I was in the army, I was deployed. Like that was one song I had on the, like the old classic iPod for whatever reason. Maybe you said like, you know, like you said, like it's the high school vibes and just like that nostalgia of like, so home and something like, yeah. Every, like, you know, the characters that grew up around you and just everything. I don't know. Something about that one always clicked. I know it wasn't like one of the big, huge, you know, singles and live ones, but that's cool. I'm actually like really interested now that you picked the two of my favorite ones over there. So it makes me feel justified. I'm like, yeah, these are great Wonder Year songs. I love these ones. And that's been, and honestly, that has been one of my favorite things over the years about, um, you know, thinking you can either a anticipate what things people are going to really gravitate towards. Um, and then finding the weirdest things would be like, I didn't think anybody liked that song. And someone's <laughs> like, it's literally my favorite song the band has ever put out. And I'm like, well, <laughs> um, and, you know, it's really like a, a, a very cool to each their own moment where even a, a song that felt like it never got its due, felt like it never, you know, had the lifespan that we thought it might have in a, like in like a butterfly effect world, like has the biggest impact to that one person. So if we had scrapped it, what a loss, you know, yeah. especially for that one person. So I've always really liked that. But um, so moving on to greatest gen, we're looking here. Um, 
You know, uh, I am going to say funeral here, but with the caveat, and I've, I think I've said this before on interviews, but uh, I'm going to say uh, I just want to sell out my funeral because I feel like, uh, and anybody that's listened to it uh, is probably familiar with the fact that it encapsulates everything. So it is basically uh, an album thesis statement in and of itself. Um, and I love that. Uh, and I will also say they're there because that is one of the the most dynamic songs that I think has always had a really cool place in people's, um, in people's own playlists, uh, and relationship with the band. Um, and, uh, and I just always really like playing it. Um, it just always puts me in like a really cool calming space wherever it ends up in the set, especially because, uh, if we play, which we often do play that and screen door back to back. I know what's coming and I'm then excited for what's coming. So um, I always like that kind of one, two punch. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say those two in that specific order, because, you know, there are a lot of those, like those old green day records where the one song bleeds right into the other and a song ends and you're like, and you just know exactly what's coming next. And you almost feel like you were gypped if it doesn't. Um, so I feel like that was one of those that, um, that we kind of wanted to have it do that, but also live has, has really, uh really come into its own uh and then on no closer um i love the ending track here especially because it was you know a cool departure from i remember making that decision um you know uh in terms of well where do we go how you know kind of like that uh if anybody's watched spinal tap uh that's like well this one goes one louder well why don't you just make 10 one louder and then make 10 the loudest but this one goes to 11, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's, there was like, there was no 11 there, um, you know, from, from greatest Shen, but we, we kind of looked at the record itself and what it was really doing and what it was saying. And we just found it um, such a, such an incredible opportunity to go in the other direction, especially because of the way that song uh, came together and, and lyrically what it was, what it was really trying to do. So um, that one, but I have always said one of my favorite songs to play live is the bluest things on earth. So that's the, other track on there um because it just again really fun to fun to play kind of riffy and it just you know it's kind of an all over the place song but it's also like a decidedly cool look into like deep look into the wonder years dna that song and and i know it's also polarizing some people are like that's the worst song the band's ever written and then i know plenty of like people in, in the press and or you know who are really familiar with the band that will live and die by the fact that that is their favorite song the band has ever written. So again, a very interesting uh, polarizing choice, but I've always really loved playing it. So quick question uh, about yeah. no, so no closer in sister cities. How do the target bonus track versions come about? Is that something that the label coordinates or is that something that you guys are approached by target? Cause I remember on no closer, one of my favorite on there is the um, with uh, San Andreas. What's the, yeah slow dance the actual Andreas. title yeah yeah yep so like i remember having like the physical cd version of that i would keep in my car yeah. so like when i was yeah. playing off apple music or my ipod i would just go to that for that that song but how does that come about because i know you did it with both of those yeah yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of different initiatives that the you know the labels have obviously and um and that in that case that was one that we we really liked and we were sad that it wasn't you know um that it just didn't feel like it quite fit the record um completely but we were like well we don't really know what to do with it and then so that opportunity came up to kind of do a like a deluxe edition uh almost um so that it still got on there and could live 
in harmony with all of its friends from that time and songs from that time period. Um, but it, we felt like it wasn't really didn't otherwise fit thematically necessarily with, you know, the whole thing, you know, and, um, and they will do that. And that's, you know, that's kind of like a, a sales tactic, but also a thing where it's like, Hey, as long as, and we, our guiding light has always been, as long as it's something that's cool for people that are trying to support, um, you know, then, then we're, we're all for doing it. And it's like, if this is a lane where we can do an exclusive thing and, and get it on there in there with it, you know, um, then, okay. Then, then we're, then we're all right with doing that. Um, you know, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you love that. We really, really, really do too. And I, I, I remember writing that and have very fond memories of it. So I'm glad it did, um, see the light of day, even as not like a, you know, a member of the original cast. So yeah, it still came out on a cool physical <laughs> piece of music too. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So, um, and then sister cities, um, I, uh, Okay, so um, we've also done uh, The Ghost of Right Now uh, in a really cool acoustic finger-picky iteration version. Um, but I've always really loved that song on this record. Um, and I don't know why, but I think it's also one of those that I went back and did like the full finger-picking, like pseudo kinsilla esque arrangement of that to try and like work the counter melodies and everything into it. And it made me love that song twice as much personally, you know, but I think like we all and every time we we did that version of it and played that version as a band, it was just like, man, it, it had that exact effect that we were looking for. But on me personally, where I just loved playing it, it let me stretch a little bit, um, you know, and play something that was a little maybe a little bit more intricate than the part than that part and those parts on the on electric. But for that reason, I, I'm a little biased to the ghost of right now on uh, on sister cities and man every time we play flowers it's just it's great uh, i you know where we went with the arc and i think it's such a testament to patient storytelling um in in the dynamics of it and i really love how it came out and it was something that's a little different but has its own its own kind of unique wonder years hue to it so those are my two for that. And then finally, we come to the hum at hand. Um, this is, yeah, this is this is maybe the hardest one. Honestly, I have, here's the thing. And before I say reason and explain to you why, uh, it's why it's definitely reason. Um, I will first say that summer clothes is a song that we did that uh, at Studio Four in Philadelphia with our, our bud, Will Yip, um, who a lot of people might be familiar with. He's done a lot of other really cool records in the, the genre and the scene at large. But that record, uh, putting Summer Clothes together and also putting the extended version together because we we were of that nature. It was such a cool experience where we, we had to sit on the extended version even though we knew it was coming. Um, and just i remember having these like almost chill moment like like getting chills while we were playing it in the studio just starting to track it live all together and doing scratches and just being like this is this is it like this is again something where we have we have unlocked a new tape in tony hawk's pro skater of our you know uh of our own level right um and um and in a great way where i was like it's so good it's also 
it does the nostalgia thing for anybody that lives in Philadelphia, which we all have for, for our entire lives. It, every time we played it, I would close my eyes and while we're tracking and I would be able to picture everything about it, be able to feel it. And I could straight up smell the fucking Jersey shore, good and bad. Right. Cause I, <laughs> as a kid going down there too. Um, and I know that drive, I know what it feels like. And, um, Dan did a great job as he always does lyrically, but I think, um, you know, choosing to, to do that on a, on acoustic and choosing to bring that context and foundation to it. And then where we went with the extended outro as like a whole evolution, really brought it full circle as well. So uh, I've loved playing it. We played that one earlier in the album cycle too. Um, and then the final track, you're the reason I don't want the world to end. I don't have children. Dan now has two of them and I just saw them the other day and they're amazing. Um, but when I listen to the final version of this song, there is a hope in there that I think is something that has been an undercurrent and a thread of commonality through our band always. No matter how bleak a record is, there's always this little glimmer poking through. And this felt like, um, you know, not to say that we are in any way done as a band or something, but this felt like, again, we put such a perfect pin in that because I, I will tell you everybody um, that I shared that with um, before the record officially came out. Um and myself too, where I would listen back to that, you know, the final mix on that. And I would, I would be like, this is as powerful. Um, like, I, I feel like I have kids. I feel like I know what that is to be like, like, and again, we are all like very much uncles to his, to his kids in our, you know, in our own way and, um, and have plenty of other family and, and you know, in our lives and friends that have a lot of kids, but it, there was a moment where, uh, I think we captured it and with what playing that and trying to meet that moment and the weight of what he put down there lyrically was really special. It was a challenge. It was also something that you don't, you just, you can't stop until you know it's a hundred percent right. And, and when we listen back to it, there is no greater feeling of fulfillment when you, when you can feel that and feel that way and be like, holy shit. I can't believe we did that, you know? Um, and like I said, there's still this kind of awe inspiring <laughs> current that goes throughout us. We're just like, really, we're doing this really people still care that much. What the hell? Um, and in that moment I was like, wow. Um, you know, the fact that I still get to wake up every day and make stuff that, um, you know, that makes me feel that fulfilled and that excited to put it out and show other people. Um, I was like, wait, I got to fucking wait like eight months for people to <laughs> like, yeah. damn it. Um, and so I remember specifically with that one hearing that. Yeah. But um, so, yeah. So it would be, it would be a reason. And so yeah, I agree with you there. I don't have kids. Um, definitely got, you know, some friends that have kids that I'm kind of like uncles to, and, you know, my brothers and sisters have younger kids. So, but I sent that to a good buddy of mine who has two daughters of his own. And I was like, your dad, you have to listen to this. And he like a couple minutes later, he just replied back. was like, fuck. And I was like, yeah, I was like that. I was like, that's how I was like, I don't even have kids. And that's how I felt when I heard this. And I think just the way it builds sonically. And it's like you said, it's such a good pin to the end of the album with the way the album starts out and kind of, it takes you through all these feelings. And then like you said, you know, the world's on fire. Everything sucks. You know, we're doomed. And then it's like, well, there's the glimmer of hope. So yeah, I think it builds well there. 
But yeah, so there we yeah, have it. There's your playlist picks. It's been a great episode. If you got time, we'll jump over and do a quick bonus video. We'll talk about Loneliest Place on Earthfest. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, perfect. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, you know, be link in description and should pop up somewhere around here. There'll be a link to the other video. So we're going to jump over and do a bonus video there. So thanks for watching.